Voice of Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. This is Michael James Lauren, your host, one of the premier people when it comes to storytelling, Dr. Murray Nozzle. He has a book called Powered by Storytelling, Excavate Craft and Present Stories to Transform Business Communication. And he's one of the best in the business, founder and director of Narrative, a firm with offices in New York and London specializing in storytelling training for business which is big today. And uh, Dr. Murray helps clients, including Fortune 500 companies, universities, nonprofits, create messages that genuinely represent who they are and what they do for onboarding, recruiting, uh, employee engagement, as well as branding and external messaging. Wow, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Michael, and thank you for your kind words. Our sponsors with over 90 years experience in developing audio electronics, Bayer Dynamics stands for innovative audio products with the highest sound quality and pioneering technology. Two business divisions, consumer and installation, provide tailored solutions for professional and private users. All products are developed in Germany and primarily manufactured by hand. From headphones to microphones and conference and interpretation systems. For more information, please visit north-america.bearedynamic.com. And by Vocal Booth to Go carries a complete line of products and accessories specifically designed for voiceover actors, audio professionals, podcasters, producers, and studio owners to help them get professional results for their clients. It's your go-to place for sound treatment, soundproofing, portable, and mobile vocal booths. Visit VocalBoothToGo.com for more information. And by Hamilton Stands, founded in 1883 in Hamilton, Ohio, Hamilton Stands is the oldest music and instrument stand maker in the world. They offer a broad range of sheet music stands, band and orchestra instrument stands, and combo stands, including mic stands, guitar and keyboard stands, and accessories. In fact, the broadcast you're listening to is made using a Hamilton stage rocker mic stand. Visit HamiltonStands.com. And Oralex Acoustics has one mission, to make you sound your best. Thousands of satisfied Oralex customers have experienced improved acoustics, along with free expert advice, total sound control products from Oralex. Enjoy widespread use among prominent artists, producers, engineers, and corporations worldwide. Remember, it's not your gear, it's the room. Visit Oralex.com for more information. And great audio starts with great gear. And Zoom's 30-year reputation promises quality and affordability. Visit zoom-na.com today for recorders, audio interfaces, effects pedals, and more. We're Zoom, and we're for creators. It used to be whoever has the most money wins. Now it seems to be whoever tells the best story wins. Is that, is that fair? Yes, I would agree with that. <laughs> well, I would say that, you know, it all depends on what you mean by winning. You know, I think that, um, yes, certainly you can use money uh, to win in certain kinds of contexts. But I think when it comes to really um, winning at something that has a lot of true and genuine value, then I really think that storytelling obviously is, uh, is, is going to be much more important than money. Uh, you talk about that, excavating, how important that is, and that listening and excavating, you know, really digging deep goes far. Can you tell us how? Absolutely. Well, the first thing let's talk about is listening, okay? So here you and I are, Michael. We are having a conversation with one another. It's a remote conversation. I'm in New York. You're in Florida. That's right. Uh, and Nonetheless, even though we can't see one another, your listening and the kind of conversation that we've had so far is already 
constituting the way that I'm speaking. There's a certain way in which you're listening. There are certain things that you've said to me which indicate to me that you're engaged with what I'm saying, and it also shows me how you're engaged with what I'm saying. So the fact of the matter is that the moment that I know that your listening is interested and engaged and open, it allows me to go places in my speaking that I wouldn't necessarily do with just anybody. So I would say then that there is a reciprocal relationship between listening and storytelling or listening and speaking. So you can compare your listening right now to a vessel, you know, or a bowl of some description. And my telling is like a liquid poured into that bowl. Now, just as the bowl gives the liquid its shape, so does your listening give my telling its shape. Now, what I mean by excavation is that you can see every one of our life histories as a kind of a gold mine, right? We're, we're all gold mines of stories. We carry our own personal um, autobiographies. We carry the heritage of our ancestors. We carry various cultural knowledges and histories given by the countries that we live in or come from. And yet we don't have all of these memories and this information instantaneously available when we need it. So in storytelling, one of the first things to do then is to create what I call an optimal listening environment so that you can then go into the depths of your memory and you can find there those nuggets of gold in the gold mine of your life history. And that's what I talk about when I talk about excavating your memory for the elements that are going to make up the story you're going to tell about yourself. We all want to be a listener. And I, I think we want to instinctively root for the person who's speaking, but we want to feel something and we want to be changed. So you know, how did you get so good at this? Well, <laughs> that's a, firstly, thank you for the compliment. And secondly, I'm going to have to answer in this way. Michael, I am the firstborn child of a concert pianist. My mother is a concert pianist. She doesn't play anymore. She's still alive and she lives in South Africa. She's uh, 80 years old. God bless her. Anyhow, when my mother was pregnant with me, I was um, already exposed to music because she was practicing for concerts. Now, why do I bring up music and, and, and my mother and my connection to my mother? Because we as human beings have been telling stories not for thousands of years, not for hundreds of thousands of years, but for millions of years. And our first, our earliest human ancestors why did they start to tell stories? They started to tell stories because they were listening to the sounds of the animals. And they were replicating the sounds of the animals, including the birds. And so one incredibly great and, and learned paleoanthropologist told me that we humans could sing before we could speak. So why I tell you that is that I see storytelling as something akin to music. A story that is well told is like a beautiful song. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. It has an emotional turning point. 
So that when we are tuning in to a story well told, as you say, whether it's a sermon, whether it's an inspirational business talk, whether it's a sales manager talking to the sales team, really encouraging them to go out into the field or wherever it is and to really sell that product. That inspirational quality, that quality that touches the heart as well as the mind, is something for me that is very akin to music. So where did I learn this? I learned this, you know, when I was still an unborn infant in my mother's womb. Now, no. <laughs> how did it actually happen that I turned this into a career that's been going on now for close to 30 years? Well, I came to New York City in 1990, and I had been a clinical psychologist. So incidentally, I have no uh, stigmas or judgments about therapy. Right. Um, <laughs> it's definitely fine for me whether you were in therapy Why then or in this? therapy <laughs> now. Yeah, um, and uh, but you know I didn't want to be a therapist anymore. I came to New York City and I wanted to do what everyone does when they come to New York City. I wanted to be famous, you know. Mm. And I thought I would do that as a playwright. Well, three years went by. I won a couple of prizes and didn't make a penny as a playwright. And so I had to go back to university again. And this time, I didn't want to carry on with psychology. I wanted to be much more communally involved. I wanted to transform communities, not just individuals. And so I went into Columbia University to do my PhD in social work, and my minor was in anthropology. So it's a combination of transforming communities and understanding cultures, right? And I needed a job. And the only thing I didn't want to do was work with people who had AIDS. I was just sort of seeing people just like myself dying, and I, I just couldn't handle it. Mm. Well, guess what the universe provided? A job with people who were dying of AIDS. That was the only thing I could do. Oh, wow. get <laughs> so I walk into to this clinic, which was in Brooklyn, and it was in the basement of a building. It had no windows whatsoever. And I sat down with my supervisor, who said to me, listen, Murray, you're not a clinical psychologist anymore. You're not here to do therapy. You are here to help all of these patients come to terms with the fact that they are dying. And all of these patients had an AIDS diagnosis. There were no medications yet that were going to change the epidemic. And, um, and uh, you know, and I said, well, what am I supposed to do? And he said, you've just got to be with people. You've just got to be with where they are at and give them what they need, whether it's something that is material or something that is spiritual or something that's emotional. And honestly, Michael, I had no idea where to begin. And, you know, I started asking my patients, as I had done as a psychologist, you know, exploring their feelings a little bit. And, you know, they just rolled their eyes at me and said to me, well, how would you feel if you knew you were going to die, Murray? I mean, mm. what kind of nonsense question is that? And so I went back to my supervisor. I said, these patients are so non-compliant. I mean, you know, I, I can't work with them. They, they, they're not suitable candidates for therapy. And he said to me, let me remind you, you're not here to do therapy. And you've got to find out what these people need. And what I did notice, Michael, was that people did die. And when people died, their belongings turned up in the secretary's office in a black garbage bag. Mm. And nobody came to claim these bags. So these people were dying with a sense of leaving absolutely nothing behind. And for those people who were living, they saw, look, when I die, I'm going to end up as one of those black garbage bags as well, a bunch of belongings that nobody wants. Now, you have to remember that a lot of the patients in this program were highly marginalized. You know, they were gay, they were drug users. Some of them came from very conservative families, and they, they had kind of pushed 
these people away. So I realized that the one thing that I could do is I could offer people a space to tell their life story. And at least for those of us who would live on into the future, we would carry those stories with us. And that these patients who are dying would feel at least my story has been told to someone who is interested and my story will live on. Well, I encountered two things. The first was that people had a very hard time listening to one another telling these stories because their own anxieties would come into play when they heard somebody else talking about something that was potentially scary to them. And secondly, they didn't really know how to tell stories because a lot of them, um, you know, had been in sort of therapies or 12-step programs. They talked a lot in, um, in sort of feeling language or psychological language. But a story isn't that. A story is a sequence of events that happen that are sensory. You know, we've got to be able to see them, smell them, taste them, hear them, touch them. That's what makes a story. So I first had to teach my patients in this AIDS program to listen and then teach them how to tell stories. And I can tell you that by Christmas of 1995, I went from one patient who was willing to come to my storytelling group and give me a try by Christmas, sorry, it was 1994, end of 1994, early 95, my storytelling group was so filled with people who wanted to leave their stories behind, particularly at Christmas time. And when the legislators in New York State were threatening cutbacks to people with HIV, my patients got onto buses, went up to the state capitol in Albany, and left videotapes of their stories on the legislators' desks and said, listen to my story, and then tell me I don't deserve services. Tell me I don't deserve to be treated with dignity. And that essentially is how the method was born, because those stories are what changed the face of the AIDS epidemic, not only in the United States, but worldwide. So it's this very self-same method that I used on dying AIDS patients in the early 90s that I've now transformed into a method where I teach people in companies how to tell stories to transform their business communication. And just so people know that uh, Dr. Murray Nozzle, he has taught storytelling, as we mentioned, more than 30 years in 50 countries with more than 10,000 people. And he understands that we all have a personal story to tell. We simply need a method to excavate, craft, to present the story. And that's why he co-founded Narrative with Dr. Paul. Is it Browdy? Brody, yes. Brody? Yes. In yeah, uh, teaches his listening storytelling method and uh, in keynotes and customized workshops, as we mentioned, to corporations. So how, how do you go from when you go into the business sector? Uh, I know that humanizing, is that the hardest thing to do to humanize the corporate type of stuff? Or is that easier than it sounds? No, it's not easier than it sounds. It's actually even harder than it sounds. But, uh, but, but seriously, though, um, Michael, it really has to do with the corporation. And corporations are as varied as human beings are. There are some corporations that really recognize the value of the human beings that works there above anything else. They realize that when people are happy and motivated and connected to one another in the work context, they will give of their best and that ultimately that spirit of connection will actually transcend the actual corporation and the 
product and reach the hearts and the minds of the clients as well. So um, it tends to happen that the kinds of companies that come to us and the kinds of business leaders that come to us are those that are already interested in this. They see that there's no separation between people and the corporation. So that, in fact, the very term humanizing business is a slightly kind of bizarre thing, isn't it? Since we are human beings who work in business and we are human beings who support businesses, it is essentially human. So how did it come to be that business could ever have been dehumanized in a way? And I do put this down to the kind of industrial age and the conveyor belt mentality where yes. human, <laughs> human beings were treated like machines, you right. know? We were treated like machines and we were not allowed to break down because if we broke down, we would hold up productivity. Mm. But we don't live in the machine age anymore. We're, we're in the so-called information age now, where who we are as full, imaginative, sentient, feeling human beings is of crucial importance. So that's why I think storytelling and the sort of humanized aspect of it is coming to the surface at this moment. It really is. And, you know, I like how you say, in, in a sense, what you're saying, you know, you have to really be unique and embrace your uniqueness. And perhaps, you know, some companies don't do that even still. And uh, it's to their own detriment, though, because it's that I love what you had. You said that, you know, being a human being in so many words, you know, you're leaving something behind. And every single person has a story you mentioned. So, um, I was thinking about like eulogies, like Aretha Franklin. Some people said that, uh, you know, the, the proper send-off is, is to show the dignity of her life. And some people said, well, you know, the pastor should have done that. Uh, you know, it's, it's very, very personal. It's, it's very to leave a legacy behind. And we have to treat a eulogy with dignity, a, a speech with dignity. Uh, is it more of a spiritual or more of a, um, there's, there's a certain beauty, a reverence behind it. And sometimes we, we treat speaking as a matter of fact and, um, we feel cheated as listeners if we get that. Now, this is such an interesting example of the reciprocal relationship between listening and telling. The fact of the matter is that what is invisible at this moment in time to the listeners who are listening to this podcast and to me and maybe even to you is your listening. How you are listening is constituting my speaking. So who you are and what the nature of this program is, when you ask me the question, well, what is this, Murray? Is this just an everyday matter of fact thing, storytelling? Or is it something else? Well, given the fact that you're listening in this kind of way and that you brought eulogies in, I would say to you that this for me is something sacred. Yes. That with those patients of mine who were dying of AIDS, were sharing their stories with me, they were sharing their lives with me. And now that those people are gone, all that I have left are their stories. So their stories and their lives are synonymous with one another. When people die, the memories that we hold of them are what continue to exist. And that for me is something sacred. It's not part of the everyday. It transcends the everyday. That's why I'm so insistent on the fact that I don't care whether you're in a corporation or a ministry or a school or in a medical school. When you are tuning in to real 
personal stories. In other words, things that really happen to people. You have to adopt this attitude of sacredness, that you are listening to something that is very important. And the listening has to be present. You cannot be listening to someone's intimate life story while you're typing on your computer or looking at your cell phone or beating <laughs> eggs for your breakfast <laughs> omelet. You, you just can't, right? People try, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, they do. So, yes, I think there is something sacred. And, you know, if you look in my book, um, you'll see there's this extraordinary um, story of a, um, a business leader at the Condé Nast Publishing Company you know, who's having to bring his team together. And he's got a whole bunch of new team members, all of whom have previously been parts of other teams. And he wants to tell them a story that's going to really help them come together as a team. And he reaches back into his childhood and he remembers being a football player and how his father taught him how to deal with failure, especially when you're on a team. And he shares this heart-wrenching story with this entire team of, of what, what, it, you know, what it was like for him when he was kicked off the team and he went back home and he sat in the shower and he sobbed, you know, and he went to his father and said to his father, I've been thrown off the team and I shouldn't have been thrown off the team and I, we should move to a different city. And his father said to him, no, that's not the way that you deal with failure. You deal with failure by facing what's happened and by putting your other teammates first before your own sort of ego needs. And this is the story that Craig Kostelich shares with his high-powered team in the World Financial Center in New York City. And there's not a dry eye in the house, but more importantly than that, they all get the message that in this um, business environment, team playing and uh, team members connecting on a deep, human and genuine level with one another is a central value. Yeah, you call that right here delivering a wow moment. That's your wow moment right there. That's your wow moment. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. Songs, lyrics, movies. I mean, it seems like uh, the power of all that, uh, because they all have storytelling in it, they last far longer than some of the things that we think are important that they, we wish to keep around for a very long time in our lives when uh, things break down or whatever it could be, a, a car, doesn't matter. But to keep those stories along, you know, usually generally they're with music or images, uh, we keep that forever. I, there was something in 60 Minutes, a woman who had dementia and uh, it seemed like her life was relatively over with. Everything was breaking down, but they put the headphones on and played her favorite song that had s stories, if you will, along with the music, and she was alive again. And it just goes to show how indelible stories are and also how they affect people from a very early age all the way through their life. I mean, you being a former uh, psychologist, that uh, you can, I guess, reverse the story or change the story or, if you will, use stories you know, to change people's lives, which, which is what you do. Yes, we can change people's lives, but we can also even change our relationships to our own lives. And we can change the relationships to our work and to people who are close to us. So, you know, you talked about the capacity of movies and songs to really um, move us and also that they stay memorable. Well, the ones that stay memorable are the good ones, right? And so 
telling a story is no easy task. You don't just, um, you know, suck it out of your thumb. It takes work. It takes work to to draw up all of those elements that you're going to use in your storytelling from your memory. That's what we call the excavating. The next part is to craft those memories into a sequence, a beginning, middle, and end sequence. And then the third part is how do you perform it? How do you present it? So I would say that I would rather die knowing that three four-minute stories of my life will be remembered rather than 3,000 pages of memoir that I write that no one's going to even look at, right? Mm, True. So the good stories are the ones that endure. The good stories are the ones that remain. And it's worth one's while to spend the time to actually find those good stories and to pass them down the generations. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning, too, that your little film that you say, Little, uh, Why Can't We Be a Family Again, about African-American brothers in Brooklyn struggling to reunite with their mother, a recovering drug addict, it was nominated for a 2002 Academy Awards. So, so much for Little. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty big achievement. Well, you know, so really, what was this, Michael? I was doing my PhD in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. I was working um, for my university, Columbia University, researching a family support program in Brooklyn, New York. And this support program had been started by two Sister of the Good Shepherd Catholic nuns. Hmm. And uh, the Columbia School of Social Work had sent me over there and said to me, Murray, you know, you're a qualitative researcher. Can you try and find out what makes this family support program so successful? Why have they galvanized this community? Why, why has this community transformed? You know, the, there aren't so many gangs anymore. Kids are actually going to school. You know, parents are getting jobs. What are these nuns doing? So I went over um, to Sunset Park and I met the nuns and I realized that the only way that I could capture what these nuns were doing would be to film them because it was who they were being that was so extraordinary. It was their enthusiasm. It was their connection to their values. So I started to use a camera to photograph these nuns and to follow them. And then I realized if I wanted to make a film about this program, I should follow some of the families who actually made use of the programs. And one of the families were the Jacobs. And yes, it was these two young fellows who were raised by their grandmother because their mom was out on the streets as a crack addict. And I just followed them, you know, for a period of two years. And I saw how these two young fellows interacted with the Center for Family Life and watched the story as it unfolded. A really simple story, a really basic story of two boys who want their mother to overcome her crack addiction so that they can be reunited as the nuclear family that they see on TV, that they see in all the movies. And uh, then we also see how the grandmother just steps in to take care of these kids when the mother cannot. A simple story but with universal themes. And if and you want to go get that, if you want to go, you, you, can you purchase that? Or where do you get that story? Uh, it is on Amazon. So it's Why Can't We Be a Family Again? And it's sold together with um, uh, A Family Grows in Brooklyn, which is another film that I made, um, you know, about the Center for Family Life. And uh, I, I, I made these films together with Roger Weisberg. He was my fellow director and producer. 
So you can find those on Amazon. Okay. Yeah, because in telling me about her, you know, I'd like to, I'd actually like to see if anything nominated for an Academy Award, it has to be good, <laughs> you know? That's so, right. <laughs> it's, it's sort of a, that's, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a democratic process of sorting out the wheat from the trap, as they say. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You never know when people are going to be touched. You know, uh, you never know when a good story is going to hit you sometimes. And sometimes it comes out of nowhere. Uh, not that I want to give Simon Cowell the plug necessarily, but, you know, shows like American Idol or uh, America's Got Talent that's sometimes interwoven. And it could be other shows, too, that uh, you see these stories come out of nowhere that begin yeah. to tug at the heartstrings and, uh, and people are affected by it. It seems a lot of uh, television programs are investing in that type of uh, storytelling. I think it's true. And what, what is it that people respond to in that? I was just thinking about that this morning. It's so strange you should say that, Michael, because I was watching um, one of these, uh, these talent contests um, and it was a, a woman uh, who was a young woman who was hearing impaired. I think they even described her as deaf. And uh, she ended up getting this golden glitter button that, uh, that, the, um, that the, you know, the, the, the judge presses this button and all the gold, um, you know, sort of um, stuff starts flying around because he's so impressed. So what is it about this woman who is hearing impaired and she gets up there and she sings in front of this audience is that she is overcoming this tremendous obstacle. And we are all very moved by that as human beings to see somebody going through the process of overcoming something that's difficult for them. It's it's just deeply moving. Uh, it's the classic hero's journey story that we start out in life and, and we go on our journey and we encounter some kind of obstacle and we think that it's going to be insurmountable. And somewhere we find the strength to be able to overcome our obstacle and reach a resolution that can actually be transmitted to other people and be very inspiring towards them. Uh, so that's why I think these shows work so very well, as we see people just get up there and showing who they are. And they're in, they, we feel like we're like them or we can relate to them. You know, sometimes uh, th- that reciprocal thing that goes on is sharing a piece of humanity or the human condition that you could grasp onto or latch onto and say, well, you know, I could feel what you feel or you've made me feel something that I didn't know I could feel. We are them. That's exactly right. And I see this in every single one of my storytelling workshops. And it doesn't matter where I am in the world. And it doesn't matter what the population is that I'm dealing with. It doesn't matter what language they speak or what gender they are or what the color of their skin is. The fact of the matter is when you put a group of people around in a circle and you get them to listen to one another and share stories, well, all of those people might as well be on American Idol for the moment that they're telling their story because they feel connected and seen and heard and they feel like they are getting this opportunity to express themselves, express who they are. Now, not all of us have the talent to be able to go onto American Idol and get 25 million YouTube hits, (laughs) but every single one of us has a story to tell. We all have a story to tell. And I guarantee you, because I've been doing this for a very long time, every single one of us has an interesting, compelling, moving, inspirational story to tell. And we really just have to look with skill and with awareness and with openness 
into that gold mine of our life experiences to find those elements that are going to make it as that story that we tell about ourselves. But we all have it. It's human. We are the species that tells stories. And some people think to think that you can seize the moment like that person and uh, how sacred that space is where you can talk and, and tell a story and people listen. Some people look at it as worse than death to get up and tell a story. That's the fear of <laughs> the fear of, of death, but it could be something beautiful. Uh, I guess you have to learn to be a little more vulnerable, something that you express when working with AIDS patients early on and, and, uh, and learn to embrace uh, vulnerability in order to, uh, to share a story. Our special guest has been Dr. Murray Nozzle, who is the co-founder and director of Narrative. He's got an incredible book called Powered by Storytelling, Excavate Craft and Present Stories to Transform Business Communication. How do you hope that people will develop, uh, thanks to your methods and, and your knowledge of storytelling and, and what you do, how do you, could you take us through that developmental process? How, what, what's your hope, though, uh, that as human beings, how we will develop by telling stories? I think for me, the most important thing is that human beings connect to one another and that we are all able to see that every other human on this planet shares exactly the same aspiration that we do. And that is to be happy and to be fulfilled and to enjoy our lives. We all want that. Human beings all want the same thing. However, we can become incredibly confused about what it is that's going to bring us that happiness. So I think that if I go and attack your farm and take all your um, belongings away, because that really belongs to me, because my ancestors might have lived in that region 200 years ago, and I really believe that that's going to make me happy, that if I plunder your farm, that will make me happy. That is how we sow the seeds of so much destructiveness and unhappiness in the world. So we have to see that everybody wants to be happy, and we have to be able to face our own impulses, look at ourselves very honestly and very clearly and say, what is it that's driving me? You know, what is it that is making me behave in these particular kinds of ways? And when you look inside yourself and you're able to tell your story in a factual kind of way, not with a whole bunch of opinions and judgments and puffing yourself up and giving all sorts of, um, you know, sort of like elaborate uh, self-characterizations. If you can just get into the habit of saying what happened in a very, very factual way and being willing to listen to other people's accounts of what happened, if we can just do that, leaving out all the judgments, all the opinions, all the assumptions, all the prejudices, and we can just listen to one another's stories openly, recognizing that we all want to be happy, then we are talking about a transformed world. Yes. Does that make sense to you, Michael? Yes, yes it does. I mean, that's why people watch the movies or watch the Academy Awards or the Oscars and, and film is to go through a a changing process, you know, a growing process. There is culture in us uh, sometimes. we, <laughs> And so uh, through storytelling, how beautiful that we can develop 
even more. And, and your method does that. I mean, as far as going on your website, it's, it's narrative.com, N-A-R-A-T-I-V.com. And That's right. Yeah. So, and when people go on your website, I mean, obviously, what are they going to get? Well, firstly, you can go onto my website uh, with my name, which is murraynossel.com. Uh, or they can go onto Narrative, which is the company, N-A-R-A-T-I-V.com. You'll be able to see, uh, learn a lot more about the method, how you can actually benefit from the method, and how you can also get involved in the method, you know, and start learning the method for yourself. So the website will also take you to a place where you can engage us, the company, to come and work with your team or your company. But we also have video, uh, videos of our um, users, of our past clients, and of myself taking you through a lesson. And so there's a lot you can get when you actually go on the website, and um, you'll come away with a much deeper sense, I think, of the uh, method when you go on to there. Go get the book. It's called Powered by Storytelling. Our special guest, Dr. Murray Nozzle, and uh, Excavate Craft and Present Stories to Transform Business Communication. We appreciate you sharing your excellence and your mastery of storytelling with us. And thanks for being on the program. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's been great. Our sponsors with over 90 years experience in developing audio electronics. Bayer Dynamics stands for innovative audio products with the highest sound quality and pioneering technology. Two business divisions, consumer and installation, provide tailored solutions for professional and private users. All products are developed in Germany and primarily manufactured by hand. From headphones to microphones and conference and interpretation systems. For more information, please visit north-america.bairdynamic.com. And by Vocal Booth to Go carries a complete line of products and accessories specifically designed for voiceover actors, audio professionals, podcasters, producers, and studio owners to help them get professional results for their clients. It's your go-to place for sound treatment, soundproofing, portable, and mobile vocal booths. Visit vocalboothtogo.com for more information. And by Hamilton Stands, founded in 1883 in Hamilton, Ohio, Hamilton Stands is the oldest music and instrument stand maker in the world. They offer a broad range of sheet music stands, band and orchestra instrument stands, and combo stands, including mic stands, guitar and keyboard stands, and accessories. In fact, the broadcast you're listening to is made using a Hamilton stage rocker mic stand. Visit HamiltonStands.com. And Oralex Acoustics has one mission to make you sound your best. Thousands of satisfied Oralex customers have experienced improved acoustics along with free expert advice, total sound control products from Oralex. Enjoy widespread use among prominent artists, producers, engineers, and corporations worldwide. Remember, it's not your gear, it's the room. Visit Oralex.com for more information. And great audio starts with great gear. And Zoom's 30-year reputation promises quality and affordability. Visit zoom-na.com today for recorders, audio interfaces, effects pedals, and more. We're Zoom, and we're for creators.